Welcome to Iteration, a weekly podcast about programming, development, and design through the lens of amazing books, chapter by chapter. My name is John. I am a web developer, and I am joined by JP, who is also a web developer and native app developer, kind of React native app developer as well. So something like uh, that. we are, yeah, something <laughs> like that. How are you doing, JP? I'm all right. Daylight savings is kind of messing me up, but I'm good. I'm uh, I'm I'm alive and I'm well. <laughs> Daylight savings is so stupid. I can't believe we haven't gotten rid of it yet, especially when it because I feel like every time daylight savings rolls around, all my tests break because I have a lot of like time based tests. And so then I have to like I need to add some kind of check in there for daylight savings because it's like move six hours in advance. But especially because I was doing code on Saturday and the like the test suite that we have runs at the beginning of the week, but then was checking against time dot now. So there was this hour differential that I could not figure out because basically like when it went to the future, it adjusted the time by an hour and like it totally broke my brain as far as like what was going on. And I was like, oh, when it's going to the future, it's losing an hour so like i got the whole test suite passing knowing that the next day it would be breaking again because there isn't the hour differential oh my god i guess that really shows temporal coupling and how i should probably think through those exceptions a lot better than we currently are but for now we just have to hack at every daylight savings and it's it's pretty annoying yeah that's funny i bet we can start a thread on like how has daylight savings fucked up your code base <laughs> i got like I, I didn't get burned by it but the way that we release our app is like automated through bitrise which is like i think a continuous development pipeline thing and i was like why who like who changed the automatic releases to be 2 p.m and 5 p.m <laughs> and i was like this is so weird and then i like ping someone and i was like dude did you change it because i'm pretty sure everywhere in our documentation and our like our release guide it says that it's supposed to release at like 1 p.m and 4 p.m or whatever like or something or something like that yeah and then i was like who changed this and then i and then and then my coworker pointed out oh dude it's probably because of daylight savings i was like oh okay so i had to like <laughs> go in and, and toggle a setting and then like trigger it manually which was like not a big deal at all but it was still like you know that's how i got burned by daylight savings yeah, it's funny. And I guess the PSA in there is make sure all your tests are fixed to UTC, which doesn't actually have daylight savings time. And then that's way better to interpret the needed time zones into the needed functionality if you need time zones. Because like way back whenever this was started, we did everything from Pacific Coast time, which is either Pacific Standard or Pacific Daylight. And uh, at some point, we'll write in some kind of abstraction that fixes it. But anyway, let's jump into what we're doing for this week, which we are jumping through. We are working through Refactoring by Martin Fowler. My book is on the shelf behind me. I should go grab it for our conversation. So this is, to be clear, a recap of, again, chapter one. The first episode walking through this book was really trying to stay higher level about the process of refactoring, the pros and cons of refactoring, how we tackle refactors. And this, which I'm really excited to, this episode, we're actually digging into specific refactors. So my goal is in the next 30 minutes or so, when you get into work and the next time you cut, touch code, you have some tools in your toolbox ready to use in your tool set of refactoring. So these are some actual refactors that you can do. So we're gonna be talking through some code examples, so make sure you've had had your coffee, but we're gonna do our best to keep them applicable to multiple code bases and try to keep them a little bit higher level as we talk through these different refactors. And then next week, we'll again talk high level and then down into code again. So I'm really excited about this kind of TikTok high, low thing. Yeah, totally. Should we just jump right in? 
Yeah, what's your first refactor that you picked? So yeah, to be clear, this chapter kind of features refactors that it calls by name. And so we're gonna be like, okay, here's this first refactor. JP's picked some, I've picked some, we've got some examples hot and ready and we're gonna dive through. Cool, yeah, and to be clear, there was like an example that a really, really big function that might be like 60 lines and the way that this chapter is structured is it will go through and take baby steps to refactor. So what we're not gonna do is go through the big example because I don't think that it would be worth your time listening to that. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to break down specific refactors and maybe more contained examples. So one thing to keep in mm -hmm. mind is that if the code base isn't that big or the function you're looking at isn't that big and it's easily digestible already, you probably don't wanna refactor things that don't need to be refactored. But imagine some of these problems in the context of a larger application that definitely needs to be scaled and changed and flexible and all of those good things. Yeah, that's a good point that like the exact examples we're talking through are so discrete and simple, then they probably don't need refactoring. But the idea is that this is in the context of a larger application that's got some thorny problems. Because we have that catch-22 of if something is complex enough to need refactoring, it's too complex to explain and hold in your head through this podcast as you're half paying attention while doing dishes or jogging. So we're trying to hit that middle ground of walking through specific refactors, knowing you need to apply them to more complex examples. And I think that we did promise we'd walk through his big example in last episode so promise broken we're not doing it because it's 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 too <laughs> shitty and long i'm sorry yeah so the first refactor we're going to go through is and i'm going to say how we how we say it in this industry i'm going to tackle some low-hanging fruit first and so the first thing we're gonna we're gonna be going through is this refactor called change function declaration and all that really means is renaming your functions and the reason i wanted to pick this one first was because i think it really goes to show that naming things is very important and the second thing that it really highlights, which I think is worth mentioning over and over again, is that not all refactorings have to be huge. So something as simple and small as renaming a function can make a huge, huge impact on the clarity of your code base. And I think you had a couple notes that I'm probably gonna steal. Go for it. I think it's amazing how much just renaming some things makes a difference. And specifically, this refactor is called change function declaration, and it's on page 124 of the book. But I think it's important to point out that not only functions and methods can be renamed, but also classes and or variables can be renamed to make things a lot clearer. And it goes a really long way. I feel like especially in JavaScript, there's always really shitty named variables. It's like let value equal. And it's like, oh my God. And, and I think it's really important to take a step back and think, what is this at this moment within this function? What is this thing? And then you don't have to refigure it out every time you look at the code. It's aptly named that point moving forward. Yeah. So, and, and JavaScript, the JavaScript and Ruby community have particular naming conventions around naming things. So for example, if you're in Ruby land, it's typical that if you have a method that returns a Boolean, like true or false, you would have a question mark at the end of that method name. Th little little things like that. And I think in JavaScript land, I don't know that this is like necessarily an established rule as much as it is in the Ruby community, but for JavaScript, you would you would maybe you would maybe predicate it with like is. So like if you're checking for like a phone number is valid or an email is valid based on some regex or something like that, maybe this function starts with is. So it would be like is valid email is valid phone number. 
and then you would pass in some argument. But yeah, I think that's less consistent. But for sure, in the Ruby community, the idea of a predicate method, like ending with a question mark, returning Boolean, is not only a really powerful abstraction, but it's also one that's really easily reused. And it makes it so like, instead of checking for a specific value in like an if loop and then moving forward, you can leverage these predicate methods and be confident it's going to return a true or a false. And I think that's a part that's important about it is that it's always returning a Boolean value when you're using those predicate methods. And I think those work really well. I just think it's important, regardless of the language or framework you're in, to kind of adapt some kind of general naming categories, conventions that I've found really helpful. So the idea of a predicate, whether or not you're using a question mark or using the is. Another one is a one that I found useful is like a formatting method or function. So using the word as or to in those names. So number as phone and pass in an unformatted number and then it returns a formatted number or weight to BMI would be, you know, a two BMI would be abstracting that user's weight into the BMI metric, which is against their body weight. And so those types of formatting things. And then the last one that I really love in Ruby is we have this idea of a destructive action generally ends with an exclamation point. So if something's going to have a lot of side effects or permutate the object, we will end it with a question with a exclamation point. So it's like, oop, this is going to be something important. Pay attention to this method because it's doing some destructive behavior. Is there any other convention? Like, is there anything you like to do in JavaScript that's similar to any of these as far as from Rubyland? You know, not off the top of my head, but the more, I don't know. It's tough because naming things is like one of the hardest things to do in programming and people mm -hmm. joke about that all the time. But it's interesting to me because when I finally land on a good function name or a good variable name, it just feels like so obvious. Like how come it wasn't mm -hmm. called this before and why did I spend 20 minutes trying to figure out a good a good thing for this? I feel like oftentimes code review helps. So sometimes I'll like point things out in a PR that says like, I need help naming this thing. I, I don't know. And sometimes it's good for people who can dive into the context of a PR and be like, oh yeah, this is totally what this thing is doing. You should call it this. One example I have for changing function declaration or just renaming is in this library that I ended up rewriting. And it's the library that I talked about in the last episode, this like multi-slider library. I had to dive into the source code and like make changes and it ended up me just rewriting the whole thing in many ways and but not not like entirely rewriting it I, I stole a lot of the source code but it was really hard to understand what some of the helper methods were doing because they were named so generically and and maybe it's just because uh there were no code comments so i had to like to understand what each function was doing i had to like play with each function and like comment things out and then see what it returned and there were no tests so i had like no no means of documentation anyways one of the functions was called position to value and so what that did was it takes a a coordinate on a number line and then returns a value that it corresponds to and that's like kind of hard to understand from a high level but all you have to know was that as a consumer of this code, I didn't know what that meant. And so when I finally decided to like refactor this thing, I changed it to something very close to what it originally was. And I renamed it to coordinate to value. And I added some comments and I wrote, you know, and this isn't actually part of changing function declaration, but you know, for future me and for future developers, I wanted to be, be clear in the comments that this function calculates the nearest value in an array based on a given X coordinate. And I think just, you know, replacing position with coordinate makes a lot more sense 
because everything in this library is based on like a number line. And so to me, coordinate, like an X coordinate is a lot mm -hmm. more explicit than position. So even little things like that and renaming things inside of the function to be what they are. So all instances of value were replaced with coordinate. And so now I feel like as someone who looks at this code later on, I can, I can know exactly what this is in the context of this app. I think the improvement was that previously the function was too general. Um, position can mean anything and it doesn't even necessarily in my head tie specifically into this library, but I feel like because it was such a, a very specialized thing, it needed to be coupled to this idea of like a number line or a graph. And yeah, that's my spiel. I think it's like such a simple, small change, but the clarity of it that it provides, I think is huge. I think this one's really interesting as well, because when I first read this function of position to value, I assumed that it was positioning the slider to the value, not getting the value of the current position. And so I think it's really important, especially I've found this in JavaScript, like sometimes you can have these sticky names where it's unclear whether it's a verb or a noun. In this case, position to value, is it doing something to the value? Is it doing something of positioning? Where I like your naming convention of coordinate, because it's very clear that it's a noun. I'm taking a coordinate and returning a value where before it's like position of value seems like it might be moving something. So it was super unclear when you first, you know, looking at the code, I have that benefit and you may not have on the audio, but keep in mind your names and how they might mean different things in different contexts. Like what does message mean? Is message a verb? Like, is it sending a message when you call the message function or is it getting a message value when you call the message function? So if you're sending a message instead of message, you might want to do send message as the function name or get message content. If you're getting the content with that function of that message, it, that's one of the tricky spots that I found is like some of the things that you're writing methods for could kind of be actions and kind of be nouns. And that's a really sticky spot. And you can really avoid a lot of confusion by just having a longer variable name that's more clear about what it is. Really try to have it tell you what exactly it is so it doesn't ask anything of the reader. Yeah, that wow, that's a very good point. Like, is, is position a verb or is it a noun? And since there's no tests and no comments, I have no idea what, <laughs> what it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool, yeah, that's really good. That's a really good uh, a thing to point out. What was your other refactor you picked up? Um, my second refactor is, is called extract function. And extract function is basically this idea of taking a chunk of code that might be in a, an if statement, it might be inside of, it might be, it's, it's any block of code that might be like nested or scoped inside of something else. And all it's doing is scoping it and putting a name to it. So like, let's say you have three console logs for whatever reason in your function and it's like, why are there three console logs grouped together? You know, maybe you can throw that inside of a function called print statement. And all of a sudden you have clarity of why you have like three console logs all out in the wild. And there's this really good quote of like when you should use this. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna lay it on you. So this is the quote. It says, the argument that makes the most sense to me, however, is the separation between intention and implementation. If you have to spend effort looking at a fragment of code and figure out what it is doing, then you should extract it into a function and name the function after the what. Then when you read it again, the purpose of the function leaps right out at you. And most of the time, you don't need to care about 
how the function fulfills its purpose, which is the body of the function. So it's like a nice way, and we always talk about abstracting logic into these methods or functions, and this is just exactly that. It's, you have some code, and its intention isn't that clear, and it's probably, you know, highly coupled together, and you don't really know why, or you know why, because it's, you know, it's in your head, you're the one writing this down, but future you might not know that a couple lines should be coupled together, and future developer who has to edit this code might not know that. So when you see something like that, it's like, okay, maybe I can, um, maybe I can abstract some of this knowledge in, into a function and put this information in my head down onto the screen. The one example I have for extracting function is in the same library. Imagine you're inside a React component a React Native component, it doesn't really matter for all intents and purposes of this example. And still talking about the multi-slider, there were these three lines of code that calculated the widths of each of the track lengths. So imagine you have like a selected track and then you have tracks on the left and to the right of that that visually are the unselected parts, right? So there were like these three lines that calculated each of these tracks. And then these were set to variables that were then set to the widths of some view in React, right? And, you know, it's all well and fine. It's like not that hard to understand, I guess. But for me... No, it is that hard to understand. Okay. <laughs> I've looked at the code so much that I like, I just get it now. Yeah, you you get it now. And so just to reiterate really quickly to add a little bit of clarity here, sure. this is, we mentioned it last episode, but this is the idea of a multi-slider. So imagine a single line input that's kind of got a dot that slides back and forth, but this has two different dots. So you're kind of selecting a range. So a lot of times you'll see this on like a price selector. So it's like low price, 50, high price 150 and the bottom value is zero and the top value is 500 so you can slide and kind of have a section selected within that values slider so this is a single slider so what you're saying is this function helps you position these two markers that define your range so you have an unselected range in the middle you have your selected range i'm sorry you have an unselected range on the left a selected range in the middle and then your unselected range on the right which would be whatever is above your current selection exactly so this yeah. function was trying to define those three lengths and widths and i'm looking at the function here and it's not even named it's just like render track one track two track three and it's very unclear what track one track two would be and what track three would be but i'm guessing track track one is just laid on track three so it becomes three segments is that what was going on here yeah so it's it see even the, these variable names are pretty bad and so what <laughs> i don't know so i was just like this is crazy what what are what are each of these tracks what what do each of these tracks do in the context of this multi-slider? And when I finally yeah. broke it down, I threw all of this into a function called calculate multi-slider track lengths, which is kind of verbose and long, but at least, at the very least, I can understand what it's doing. And in React Native land, I just threw that into a helper file and imported it. So you don't have to like mm -hmm. see this huge thing. You could just like trust that it's doing what you need it to do. The implementation details, however, return instead of track one and track three and track two return track base track left track right and track selected so i feel like that in and of itself is a little more at least like indicative of where you would be seeing these tracks in the context of the ui 
That's awesome. I think that the takeaway here is naming this function, it was an unnamed function previously, gives you at least a, a what it's doing right at the top before it jumps into it. And then explicitly calling out each of these specific return values is adds so much clear clarity on what's going on here. And I think in a way, this is definitely a refactor, but I think this refactor enables future refactoring more than anything else, because now you can modify, calculate multi-slider track lengths, and you have a how that's encapsulated, that can be a lot easier refactored, because you have this abstraction of calculate multi-slider track lengths, which is this how that's happening. So a quick question, like specifically this implementation for this code, did you put all of this code into the main JSX template, or was this now in a separate file that's being imported? No, this was now in a separate file. Um, so the See, and that's another yeah. reason because that specific template is so much more clean and so much like as way less cruft and readability. So now this is just a single import statement, which is way better than all of this code. Uh, and it's interesting too. I just want to call out like your code is almost twice as long, so it's way more verbose than verbose. Verbose. verbose? <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> God, it's way more verbose than the previous code, but I think it's way more explicit. And so even though it might be a couple extra lines. I think that it's a, a huge win overall, for sure. Cool. It's a good example. What do you have on deck for us? You know, I had examples. Well, I had extract function as well. I kind of want to talk about a couple things. And I just think it's the same thing. You really gave a front-end heavy example, which is great. But where my brain goes is more back-end, because I live in more in that Ruby land. And, you know, I had this example here of, like, getting a user's bank balance. And so you have to have this loop that gets the user's transactions, a statement that sums the transactions, and then a formatting at the very end that formats this. And so it's like, it's very common to have a lot of code that does a lot of different things, and it's not clear about what it's doing. So I refactored this into just like four statements that are each in their own methods that can be reused in other places. So for example, a format balance statement can be used not only when getting a user's current balance, but maybe a pass balance or different things like formatting that number in that way would make perfect sense. And then just the idea of a get accounts. So instead of all these different loops and crazy functions, we can just have get accounts, get transactions, some transactions, format balance. And it's just so much more explicit what's going on, especially when you start thinking thinking about error states and permutations of error states. So this whole refactor theme of extracting function, I think makes handling errors a lot easier because you're not trying to handle the error within this whole nest of looped functions. Like you can just kind of step through the main functionality and then deal with error handling within its own method within that state. Because so often your error handling becomes this big if for loop looped around this big other nest. And that's how you just end up with a big, big pile of spaghetti, big pile of spaghetti. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's interesting that, uh, my take on all of this was like front end heavy stuff and your take on this stuff is all back end heavy stuff. <laughs> that's what makes the magic. That's what makes the magic. So I've got two more, probably we won't have time, but I'll for sure do this one more abstraction, which is this replace temp with query. This is a really simple refactor. And the idea here is instead of declaring temporary values through your functions, just actually call other functions setting and returning into those values. So kind of riffing off the previous example I gave, you know, I declared a temporary value of accounts equals get accounts passing in the user, and then transactions equals get transactions for those accounts. So it's two different lines that kind of get the accounts and then get the transactions transactions from those accounts. But instead, you really can just do transactions equals get transactions. And within that block, get tra 
get accounts user. So there's no reason to have those different temporary variables unless I'm using them in other places. In general, it's a lot more efficient to just simply pass in the function as the other side of the equal sign instead of actually declaring or pass your function into another function. I think this can get pushed a little bit too far because then you end up just passing functions inside of functions inside of functions and it's kind of hard to follow the thread. So I think there's a time and a place for temporary variables or just like those variables that you're using those let declarations in JavaScript or just the you know standard variable declarations in Ruby that make your code more readable from time to time. But I also think sometimes there's five or six let declarations on top of a JavaScript file that don't need to be there. And in reality, you can just be passing through other functions into functions or returning values of functions instead of trying to hand around these temporary variables so much. So this is one I've been using a lot more in Ruby and I've been really liking it a lot. Yeah, so... I think there's like an inverse to this one where it's like replace query with temp. So <laughs> yeah, I think there there's, is. there's, there's always like scenarios where you want to do this and you want to do the inverse of it, but replace temp with query. I, I think is the motivation for doing something like this. I think is the, is part of the reason that functional programmers are like really into into functional programming because you can just like because if you treat everything like a function you could just pass in values into functions and then mm -hmm. and then have like a nice pipeline of things and so i think the motivation for replace temp with query is that sometimes you're just you're just calling a function and then assigning that to a variable and you're only using that just so you could pass it to another function <laughs> and so and so the reason that you would replace temp with query in your example is so i'm going to just like read some code here and so you have this example of like accounts equals get accounts where you pass in a user and you're storing that in an accounts variable but if the only place you're ever using that accounts variable is to is so you could pass it to a get transaction method it almost doesn't really make sense to store that as a variable because it 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 almost it almost says to me as a consumer of this code or someone who's like someone who's code reviewing or refactoring this or has to extend it i'm thinking like okay i see this accounts variable like is it being used somewhere else like there has to be a reason that it's stored in a variable but sometimes you only mm -hmm. do that just so you could pass it into the next function which is you know not necessarily a uh, indicative of like why you're setting it Maybe because like perceptibly you think it might look cleaner to pass in like a variable to a function. But like, as you said, you can totally just do get transactions and then call get accounts that passes in user inside of that function directly. And so, yeah, I think I think the intention is a lot is a lot clearer of like eliminating this like temporary variable when you don't really need to declare it. And I'm not going to talk about performance benefits because like the amount of space you're taking up by declaring a variable is so small that it doesn't even matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter um, the yeah. point of this is more of just like cleaning up your code with these unnecessary, unnecessary temporary variables. Yeah. So, all right, we will do the last one. I'll try to bang through it really quickly. And this idea of replacing a conditional with polymorphism, uh, this is on 272, and this is the abstraction that's here, this refactor. I don't know why I keep calling it abstraction, but it's kind of tools. This is a tool that you can use, which is this idea of replacing a conditional with polymorphism. So we've talked about this in depth when it comes to object-oriented programming. We talked about this through practical object-oriented design in Ruby. We talked about this in 
lots of the different books we've been through. But I've been using this so much lately and trying to leverage it more and more and more. And I'm gonna go back to the well of this example of a notification object with a deliver method. So I'm looking at this method here that switches on the notification type. So when it's an SMS, it you know gives the content which truncates it to 140 characters because it has SMS limits. It grabs the user's phone number and then it instantiates the SMS service to deliver that content to that number. But you know if it's a email notification, it has a method that generates the email subject and then a method that calls the user's email and then it calls the email service and delivers that. But what I end up with is this giant case switch statement within my deliver method, within my notification object, when it's an SMS, do this. When it's push notification, do this. When it's an email, do this. When in reality, what we could do is extract each of these notification types into their own child objects that belong to email, and we can define the deliver method within each of them. So we can have email method with just a clean deliver method that's got that what it needs to create and deliver the email. We can have an SMS notification object with a clean deliver method that's got just the stuff it needs to deliver that email. And you can just totally remove this entire case and if statement. It makes things so much cleaner knowing that you have the responsibility and the clarity of what job it that specific model is doing. And I think that it was really cool because in the book, he also walked through using polymorphism in JavaScript for the example he was walking through. And it was a little bit harder for me to get my head around of how that's immediately applicable to like a front end code scenario because their example was a bit contrived and it was doing a lot of quasi back end like calculation and formatting that I wouldn't normally lean on JavaScript in that way in that context to do. So I don't think it was a great example. But I'm wondering if JP, you have found use cases for this type of polymorphism in JavaScript, if it's something you use day to day, or if it's really more of an object oriented thing? Uh, the short answer to that question is no. Yeah. I don't use I polymorphism. <laughs> yeah. I think that maybe to some degree, something ancillary to duct typing in that you possibly are writing functions that you can reuse in different contexts towards so like a formatting function or, you know, some type of array functions that might be useful or a sort function. Like, sure, there might be some abstractions that you can reuse, but that's not really polymorphism and it's not really duct typing. It's just being smart about how you're using functions. And I'm sure you do things like that day to day, but I think that this is more something that you can leverage if you're more so in an object oriented or object-based environment for sure. Yeah, and I think it's definitely, React is more and more shifting towards like functional programming practices. And so yeah. even though you might see some like class declarations in React or React Native, they're not really classes under the hood. It's all it's mm -hmm. all just like a function prototype. And that being said, it's like, I don't know, I, it, in my code, I try to write more functions than classes. So it doesn't really make sense to, to like apply polymorphism in this way. It's just like a different train of thought, I think. But I, I think this example in the book was pretty cool because it was more of like a general purpose program that just happened to be written in JavaScript and not, necess exactly. and not yeah. necessarily like some front end code that needed to be refactored. Totally. Okay, cool. Awesome. Well, do you have any picks for this week? I do. I have a JavaScript pick, which I feel like is very apropos, but it's a silly one. And it's this, nice. uh, it's this parody, parody website or like package called Thanos JS. So I don't know if you've seen the Avengers. 
but it's called thanosjs.org and it's the tagline is reduce the file size of your project down to 50% by randomly deleting half of the files. And so the installation instructions are so silly. It's I don't even know if this is like if these are real gems, but to install it you do gem install power, gem install reality, and you install power reality mind space time and soul and the, the use five it, stones. yeah. And the usage is in the in the command line Thanos snap fingers snap fingers dash dash with glove and I don't know if, if like this is like actually a thing if it will like go through your code base and randomly recursively delete like fifty percent of your files or something I don't know um, I just thought it was really funny and very lighthearted and I don't know I love that that's a great pick that's a great joke that's awesome I love it's not only like a silly concept but then the actual insta- installation in- instructions that you have to like gather each of the gems yeah <laughs> it's hilarious I love it cool great pick so my pick this week is two things encapsulated into one pick so I work with a remote team and I'm constantly needing to share what's on my screen do remote code reviews and things like that so I use two tools to do so that are both really freaking powerful the first one is loom and it's a free tool and it's loom.com l-o-o-m and it's really powerful basically it is like this WebRTC thing that live records both your webcam your screen and your mic so they can see your face you telling things and what's on your screen at the same time they just released a desktop app which makes it way better because before it was in this janky ass chrome extension so now you can see whatever is on your desktop and it's got way better support and it's just working really really well and it's like it's nice because it's not like you have to record the video stop it upload it somewhere like you literally hit record hit stop and share the link because it's been uploading in the background so that's the one of the best parts about loom the second one which is very very similar is called ScreenFlow and ScreenFlow is a video editing and capture tool. So it's like when you need something like Loom, but a little bit more heavy duty. And the two things that are really freaking cool about ScreenFlow, it's like it allows you to do some editing and call outs and like arrows over the text and stuff. But the other thing that's really, really cool is you can plug in up to two devices via USB and capture their screens. So I can capture an iPad, a iPhone, my laptop screen and my external monitor and my webcam at the same time. So I literally can capture the entire platform all at the same time. So like if I'm showing someone how their web app interacts with their mobile app and I wanna capture my face and my screen at the same time and have notes open, I can do so and record all of those displays and their audios all at the same time, which is like super, super powerful to be like, hey look, like I'm sending a message on this phone and it pops up over there. That kind of stuff is really, really hard to show a client or a developer remote in general, but being able to demo both that and then you can comp that all together on one screen so like literally just like it's super easy to just drag and drop so you can be looking at the phone screen the desktop version and your own face all edited together with a voiceover and it's like pretty easy to do and it's really really powerful so it's like it's like loom but when you need it like really heavy duty and to capture multiple inputs which is really cool so those are my two picks for today next week i'm super excited we're going to jump into chapter two of refactoring by martin fowler this is going to be a high level chapters. We're not going to be getting into the nitty gritty examples, but we're going to be walking through a lot of pros and cons of refactoring, more that higher level stuff about refactoring and how to approach that process. So join us next week for that. And thanks so much for listening. 